1: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom
0: itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. The primary purpose of a family liaison officer is that of an investigator. Their role is to gather evidence and information from the family to contribute to the investigation and to preserve its integrity. The FLO also provides support and information in a sensitive and compassionate manner, securing confidence and trust of families of victims of sometimes horrific crimes, primarily homicides but also road fatalities, mass disasters or other critical incidents ensuring family members are given timely information in accordance with the needs of the investigation at the time. My next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast has played a vital part in this role, has coordinated teams of FLOs through some of the greatest challenges our nation has faced, from national disasters involving UK citizens overseas to terrorist attacks on UK streets. Retired Detective Sergeant Miles Manning joins me on the Protect and Serve podcast to explore his more than 30 years in British policing, supporting families and colleagues through some of these incredible challenges. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve, and as I say every week, uh, it's another week and another fantastic guest to sit down with and explore their life in British policing. I've been honoured so far to speak to so many different men and women from all aspects of British policing and overseas, and this week is no different at all. The role of a family liaison officer is critical in any major investigation, critical incident, or mass casualty event. They are that familiar face that often has to deliver sometimes the most devastating news or importantly try to obtain information to pass on to an investigations team and an SIO to help them take an inquiry forward. Miles Manning, my next guest, is a former detective sergeant of 30 years from the Met and was at the sharp end of a lot of these incidents where FLOs are deployed to play the very role that I've just outlined. It's an honour for me to welcome him onto the show. Miles. good morning on this lovely Sunday. Welcome to the Protect and Serve podcast. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I, I, I like what you said about that, because I think, um, just quickly, uh, I, was a, I ended up being a family liaison coordinator. And, you know, I've, I've been an FLO and FLC, but I would be absolutely amazed at some of the work my FLOs did, uh, you know, in places like Belgium, in, in, in Brussels, mm. and in Seuss, and it was it was a privilege to be part of, of that team and to, to, to oversee what they were doing. And it's exactly as you say, ordinary people doing extraordinary jobs. Um, and it's an FLO role that never gets the, the sort of recognition it deserves. Like I feel anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. So we're gonna let's let's look at your career more closely now. From what I can see, joining the police in 1991. Yeah. Walking through the gates to training college, tell us about that experience and the move into policing. What prompted it?
1: Well, I'd always wanted to be in the police, and I'm—I uh, I make no um, uh, bones about the fact that I loved every single second of, of my police service. Um, I tried to join the police when I was eight, eight, nineteen, nineteen. Um, I come from a long military background, right? Like every, you know, every generation has been in in the military and the last two generations have been in the Marines. And uh, I... (laughs) Wow. I, like so many of, of of my era, all right. It started with the bill, <laughs> the, the, you know, the PC stamp and and you know all those people, all those characters on, on, on the bill. I absolutely loved that. And I thought, oh, I'll have a bit of that. I quite fancy that. So when I was nineteen, I applied and had the worst interview going. Uh, it was awful um i, I was just diabolical uh, but I worked out that the other people in the room were there was quite a few ex-servicemen there who seemed a lot more switched on than I was at 1819. Uh, And so I thought, I know I'll I'll just join the military. So I joined the military, I did did the Air Force. I did five years in the Air Force. My father had transferred from the Marines to the the Air Force by that time. So it was natural and I'd grown up in Air Force bases. So it was natural for me to go. So then uh, when I left the Air Force and joined the the police, uh, I walked through the Hendon gates. I couldn't have been happier. This was like a a lifetime dream for me. This is what I really desperately wanted to do. but I, I, I was still in military mode. So I turned up there and I was as smart as possible could be. I, I got given a, a room, a single room. I'd never had a single room. All right, it was unbelievable. All right, I, I, I had this room I, I, in the morning when I got up and they said, oh, I didn't have to be there until sort of like half past eight, nine o'clock, which is like, what, four hours before I would normally on a training establishment be, be, be there. I made my... Bed packed. <laughs> I made my room was as clean as, you know, everything it was been, never been cleaner that room. And then um, I went downstairs and I did my day and it was quite relaxed. I thought, well, they're the us into a false sense. of Came back to my room that night and there was a note on my bed pack, <laughs> right, which had been opened up, made into the bed from the cleaner saying you, you're obviously ex-military you don't have to do that here. <laughs> and I was just absolutely stunned, you know. <laughs> she said, if you want to bring your duvet and don't worry about the state of the room, I'll clean it up for you. I, I you know, so I, uh, uh, Hendon was just like uh, amazing for me. And the, and the, um, the so the fitness was fine because obviously coming from a, uh, from a military background, I was always into sport. So I was a lot, lot fitter then. So that, that was absolutely no problem for me, although I hated running. Still do. But um, the academic was a bit of, <laughs> getting into the academic side of things, you know, because in the military, we don't really do much academic stuff. You know, we're told what to do. We're told what to do. We're told what to do. And we do it, you know, and, and, and we're pretty good in that, in that respect. But learning sort of all those white notes. So I sort of struggled at first. Um, and mainly I, I struggled at first because I probably didn't get in myself into a routine of studying, and I was still enjoying it. Um, you know, I was really enjoying the, the first couple of weeks and and meeting uh, my new uh, my colleagues and just getting into this role of, of being a police officer. Um, but then I had a bit of a shock, uh, like, in two weeks in when I had my first exam, and I only just got over. I literally was bottom of the class, and I thought, I'm not I'm of not my class, I, I need to sort of, so I really sort of upped my game then and started getting to, to, so I would go, I would finish my finish our day, I would go back, I would do some studying, and then I would do a little bit of training, and then it all became a much, much more, more, more focused. Uh, but yeah, Hendon for me was, once I got my head around it, uh a first of all it was relatively it was a lot different to the training establishments i've been into uh and then once i got my head around the academic side of things yeah it was great fun it it really was and i'm i've got the the, above here to to my left here i've got the class photographs of you know january 1991 uh and i'm still friends with some of these people um that are are on that photograph so yeah um it was the moment I walked through that door, I felt like I belonged. I felt like I'd, I'd got my career. And, and I still had that feeling that the day I left Scotland Yard uh, for the last time, you know, and, and those, and there was, I've worked out there's 9,611 days in between. And they were just, um, you know, I had bad days, but I never had one, any of those days that, um, where I wanted to think, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Never, never did that ever cross my mind.
0: So, so out of interest, do any of the people that appear in that photo over your left shoulder hold significant rank or are still in the job? Any any names that we might know?
1: Uh, I think one's managed to get higher, um, a, a guy called Sean Wilson. I saw him on the TV a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he, I think he was a chief superintendent uh, out, um, I think he was out west somewhere. But the rest of us, I think, um, I'm not sure many rose above uh, sergeants. And um, uh, I think there's a couple of inspectors in there, but... Um yeah and a few went um i'm looking at the photograph and a few went to the um a few went to the the c i d side and then a few just disappeared. Uh, and we have no clue where they are at all, uh, despite uh, four or five of us that are Facebook friends talking to each other, regularly trying to work out where they are. They've just disappeared off the face of the earth as it happened, suddenly it? it was nearly 30 years ago, no, well, over 30 years ago now. So. Your, your graduation
0: must have been a very proud day.
1: Well, it was. It was proud and it was a bit embarrassing as well because uh, my father turned up, who I uh, absolutely adore. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's gone now, but I still, uh, you know, he's still one of the influence, leading influences in my life. Um, and he um, turned up with my, um, with my mother, uh, my brother, who is was, was a lot younger than me, and my partner at the time, who later became my, uh, my wife and she. So um, we, we were on this parade, doing our parade ground. and my father turned up in full uniform, as he did. He, was a, he, was, he transferred, for, he did 15 years in the, in, the, in the Marines, and then did 35 in the, in the Royal Air Force. And he, he rose to the dizzy heights of um, Sergeant PTI in the Marines. And then became an officer in the air force but he still always thought of himself as a sergeant in the P- pti in the royal marines to the day he died he thought he was a sergeant PTI. but he was there um and he came in full uniform as he did and we were marching around and I, I, out the front of a corner of my eye i saw him stand up and salute the um salute the the, the standard as he should have done <laughs> okay and then I saw my my partner; she just sank, and my brother just sank into the into their seats, And I could see all this out the side of my eye. And I remember speaking to him afterwards. I said, "Why did you do that?" He said, "Well, I had to do it because there was a marine there. He was in full uniform, and he would have definitely done, it, you know." And I remember speaking to the marine as well. He said, I did it cause "Your dad did it." And I said, "It was quite uh, yeah, it was a very proud day." Yeah, so my my dad was very happy that I, he forgave me.
0: Let's let's talk about your uh, your po- your first posting out to Charing Cross Division. Yeah, you know we talk about the challenges of policing, and sometimes not really knowing what those challenges are until you hit the streets and you're you're faced with your first challenge to try and overcome. What were those first years of experience like as a sort of probationary constable learning your trade? So
1: I, I was really lucky because I, I I had no affinity to London. I, I I'd never lived in London. I'd been in the military. I'd been dragged around the world by my father and my mother. and Father in the military i had no i didn't know london at all um they came out to germany when i was in in uh, based in germany and the metropolitan police came out to germany and they were they were recruiting so that's why i came to london um and um i was sitting there going to filling out my sheet going you know the postings where do you want to go to i said i have absolutely no clue I remember one of the instructors coming up to me and said, just put central London, your your military, that's where they're going to put you anyway. So central London, a whole Charing Cross was open. So I ended up, I started at Bow Street, first of all, and then about six months later, Charing Cross opened. So I'm a Bow Street runner. and I'm very proud of that. Uh, And then Charing Cross opened. And there was a whole influx of probationers that were either ex-military or Scottish so um that you know had no no connections to to uh to london at all so uh, i went in there including matt raptor who who sadly was taken taken from us um, a, a year or two ago uh and um it, it was really good fun we were really lucky because it was like one of those sort of decent football teams where you have lots of youngsters all right but a good dispersion of older sort of people so when i first arrived I had people like um, Dave McCurdy, who's now in Australia. Um, he he, uh, he was one of my street duties instructors. I had people like Chris Krell, who was uh, who ended up being a, a DCI in the in the in the in the service in the in the Met. These were really really good, decent, strong um, uh, police officers who who for the ten weeks they call it puppy walk, but but gave us a good grounding of of the um, of, of the area gave us a good grounding in, in policing, and and we were we were encouraged to do to every aspect was covered from the simple basics traffic stop uh, to just talking to people in the street to doing you know offend you know traffic offences and then moving up gently into 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 arrests. Uh, and, and getting more and more complex and then for, from away, about week three, any call that came out on the radar we were expected to take and it was everything there was there was about seven or eight of us in that intake. Uh, and we were just everything it was so because we were down the west end though it didn't have any sort of people it didn't have any residential properties very few residential properties but we still had the same sort of issues that we were down and we had sudden deaths of people in um you know my first sudden death was a a guy who died in the underground london underground offices uh, off uh, Long A Cup near Covent Garden. He'd been in the he'd been in the toilet all night, and no one had seen uh, seen him. He'd lived on his own. He died unfortunately had a heart attack in the toilet, and that was my first sudden death. All right, we would we were had disputes, you know, d- d- domestic disputes all the time. But they weren't in people's houses, you know, in front rooms or in, they were in the street. And, and there was always, it always brought trouble around the, the peripherals as well of other people getting involved. And in hotels as well, we were called, called to. And some of these were quite high class hotels, you know, with the Savoy and, and all those, those relatively high class establishments. That If you were getting called to, it was, you know, something that had to be dealt with very, very discreetly or the, or the management would get upset uh, upset with you there. And then we had all the disorder as well. So a Friday, Friday night, um, Friday and Saturday night down down the West End can, can be pretty, um, can be well, it can be quite challenging. Um, you're, you're and we didn't go in cars. Obviously, we walked everywhere. Um, but you are going from job to job to job, splitting up people fighting and, and and or you know they're sorting out the, aggr- the aggressive side of things and moving moving people on and sending people that way and the other people send them in the other direction and then moving on to the next one and uh, yeah so um, it, it was really r- it was a different sort of grounding to sort of being out in the inner suburbs, you know, the Brixton's and the outer suburbs of Collindale. So it was different in, in, in that way. Um, and um, it probably wasn't as, as intense as it is out, out there. Um, but we had a diverse population. We had, you know, every sort of ethnicity coming through at, at some stage. Um, we had a big homeless community, which was, was a problem. We had a, we attracted criminals, traveling criminals. So, you know, uh, handbagging, as they call it, people, come down to steal handbags. I mean, that one stage that was six, 700 a week were being taken. Oh, wow. Uh, pro, so prolific criminal. Yeah, it's a lot. I, mean, I know, I, know I, I use the word only because it's not, you know, you shouldn't use the word only because it's uh, someone's handbagging. And it was only a handbag, but it does involve... A degree of uh, complexity and 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 skill and, and nerve, and these people were were dipping in, in in busy areas. They weren't just running up and grabbing a bag and running. They were they were using stealth to get that bag, no. uh, and so it was quite difficult. And they they were they were pretty switched on these, these guys. Um, so yeah, so it was quite interesting and challenging doing them uh, uh, as well. And because uh, yeah, so yeah, it was a different sort of grounding, um, but it was a thoroughly thoroughly enjoyable sort of grounding, and I. Ha- the big incident that changed my life, and and I always say this, the reason I'm talking to you, uh, because I was posted down the West End, uh, and I was always going to be uniform. I, I loved being in uniform. I just wanted to be an area car driver. That's all I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to be uh, you know drive cars around London quickly. I managed to get a, re- a response driver whilst I was uh, whilst I was a PC. The Tony Stamp
0: you coming out again?
1: Exactly. <laughs> but i would also say it was also because the area car drivers were just they were just always both of them um, both male and female were just that little bit above you know they were just that little bit
0: palmer, yeah. that
1: little bit be, you know not better police officer but they they just they just seemed to be able to take everything in their stride as well as being able to drive Brilliantly through the streets of London, you know, through the busy streets of London because it was pre- pre-congestion charts. It was it was chaos down there at the times. Um, they were the ones that when they turned when they <laughs> turned up, you, you knew it was it was going to be okay, you know, because they would always be able to win seconds, be able to assess what was going on. And I used to love working with air car drivers and 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 the older uh, and that that's what I wanted to, to, to be like. But what happened to me is that. Um, I was driving the van late turn Sunday um, in February 1996. Um, And um, because the late turn van finished early, I I finished at 10 o'clock. And I had met a friend from my Air Force days. uh, And I'd said, Oh, I can meet you for a quick drink afterwards. Because in those days, Sunday, the pub shut at half past 10, didn't they? So I went into the pub. And, and I sat there for like 15 minutes and the friend didn't turn up because <laughs> we didn't have mobiles or anything like that. Uh, I came out of the pub and it was on the strand and I turned right. Uh, and as I turned right, there was this boom. All right, and I can remember this this almost like a fist. It didn't hurt, it, this fist came straight through my chest uh, and picked me up and threw me about 15 feet down the, um, uh, down the strand into the doorway of the, um, Alliance and Leicester Building Society, and as I landed, and I'm a big lad, you know, I, I, I'm 15, 16 stone guy, right? and as I landed, this glass came flying across, and I was sitting there going, what, what's happened? <laughs> you, know, you know, one minute I, I'm walking, literally just come out of the pub, and, and then the next minute I'm in this, in this, I have no clue what's going on. So I picked myself up and then very quickly I start thinking, well, oh, this is a bomb. This is because I'd been to a few bomb scenes. Obviously, that's another thing down the West End that, that is different to uh, being out in the out in the boroughs. I've been to a few bomb scenes, I've done security patrols. I thought, well, this is a bomb. So I came round the corner from Strand into uh the Old Witch and I was confronted by this um bus. And it had crumpled in, and it looked it looked like a massive bite mark had been taken out of the bus um, uh, by the door, you know, the mid bit where the door is, uh, and and so I ran up to this this um, bus, and uh, and in the bite mark there was a guy sort of lying uh, on it down, and he was murmuring away, and to his right there was a, a there was a pistol. So I looked at him, uh, and I quickly worked out that he, he you know he was he, he was. He was unconscious, but he was breathing. He was thinking. So I put him in the recovery position as I've been trained to do. And as I was doing this, I just remember looking over my right shoulder, and literally I could have reached out and touched him. Was uh, was a guy who had been sitting on the um, uh, who had was sitting on the 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 seat next to where the door would have been, but obviously it wasn't there. Uh, And he had the bottom half of his, his his body was missing. So, from you know just you know from then oh, wow. and there was he, he blood everywhere uh he was his he was his eyes were wide open and he was badly burnt across the thing, and I thought, oh my days, turned out that he was the guy that was um carrying the bomb uh and they they don't know where he was going to, uh but he was come down the stairs and it had gone off um so they probably surmised that he was going to the royal courts of justice and he was going to just park uh, park the bomb there. So I was dealing with this, this there, and I, I remember um, my. Um, we didn't have any mobile phones in those days, but one man did. So there was a guy who came up and said, "Can I help you? Can I help you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, call the police." And he had this mobile phone, it a bigger mobile phone, obviously, and he was tr- he couldn't press nine nine nine. All right, so I took the phone off him. All right, and I rang 999, and I thought to myself, I um, very calmly called for police and called for assistance. But I, I, I've i listened to the recording, and I, uh, to be fair, I got everything out, all right? and I repeated everything. I told them where, I told them what had happened, and I repeated everything. But I was shouting, uh, and... Um, uh, and, you know, this, this for me is the start of a journey uh, because I really, really looked at that and what I did and, and how, I, um, how I responded. And I just remember, right, I did this, thought I'd calm that down, and then I thought, right, the bus, it's, it's half past ten at night. There must be something going on and there must have been people in there. So I climb into the bus and I start working my way down the bus and I think, well, I'm going to walk towards the driver. Because the driver will be there. And I get eventually to where I, I get past the body and, and I checked, to be fair, I checked that he was if he was a he was alive, he was alive, but clearly he wasn't. But I did did it anyway. Um and I went to to the to the bus, the front of the bus, eventually got to the front of the bus. And I remember um the seat was there, but he wasn't. And I just convinced myself, right, he's um he's just been blown to smithereens. That's 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 it, he's gone. Alright? I he's gone, I now need to turn around and deal with the other people that are in the bus. So I then turned my way. He hadn't been blown to smithereens. He'd been blown out the window and he'd gone 30 feet up the road in the same way that I had. <laughs> okay. All right. And he was being deal- dealt with by a, a nurse because there, are n- whenever there's a problem, nurses appear because um, they're brilliant. All right. And He was being dealt quite calmly by a nurse who was much more together with it than, than, than I was. And um, he... Uh, you know, he so he was okay, and then I remember getting off the um, the bus because I cleared the bottom bit and it was okay. And then the TSG turned up, <laughs> okay. And I thought, so, I, I was PC Manning here, TSG turned up. And the first thing the PSG was went, cough. <laughs> <laughs> he just basically walked up to me, cough, mate. you know, <laughs> oh, okay. All uh, right, so I then. Started walking down, and we would hand it over our relief to our sister relief, D relief. Uh, I was on A relief at Chan Cross, and we handed over to D relief. And a lot of good friends were on, on, on that. I remember, like Ian, a guy called Ian Fleming, and D- and, and Gary Smith. They, they they saw me and grabbed hold of me and said, "What, are you, what are you doing? What are you doing?" And I told them what had happened. So they sent me back to um back to the uh, to the neck, and uh, and I don't know what happened, but it took me nearly 15 minutes to get back. What is a five minute walk? Um, I have no clue why it took that long, and so um, so move forward a couple of you know a couple of days after I'd, I'd been you know all this palaver. I ended up spending all day with uh, SO13 at the time getting interviewed, and I like. Uh, my inspector, Mr Fillory, a uniform guy, um, he was really, really into, he, was, he led the way really because he was really all about um, people looking after his team and, and you know, caring and he was worried about mental health as well. So he took me off the streets and I was fuming, I was absolutely fuming that he took me off the streets and he put me in the Intel cell, the recently formed Intel cell, because uh, it evolved from the old collators and, and they started having computers in there and that, so they put me in there, I don't know anything about computers. Um, and then I had to go to the occupational health had just started as well, and so I had to go and see occupational health, and I was absolutely livid about this because I didn't need to do this. You know, of course I would be fine. I was fine. Um, but you know, it changed my life because uh, I went in in that intel cell. Didn't want to be there. All uh, right, I got there was a sergeant in there, a DS called Ray Harling, who I'd known from my uniform days, who basically said come on miles we're gonna have some fun and that I never went back to uniform from that and if I hadn't been in that that situation if I hadn't been in that pub if I hadn't walked out uh, and turned right when I did if I had been the person that was like five yards behind me got injured because of all the glass not badly but she got injured I didn't get injured at all if I hadn't have done all that I I would have stayed and I would have carried on being uh, in, in uh, my uniform career. And, you know, I don't have any regrets about not being in uniform, but I would have, you know, that's part of me is going, oh, I wonder what would happen. But that <laughs> changed my life because I then went into the intel side of things, which I, I found out that I had a bit of an aptitude towards. Um, yeah, so that so, so that's the result. Because of that, I'm now here. And I firmly believe that, <laughs> you know, fate or that sliding door, no, no, door moment. Without that, I wouldn't be here. In this room, talking to you now.
0: To give our listeners some context, this this incident surrounds the Aldwych bus bombing, which occurred on the 18th of February 1996. It was the result of an uh, an IED explosion set by the Provisional uh, IRA, which was obviously. Um, Detonated whilst the individual, the perpetrator, who was the only casualty, the only death, involving an instant, thank God, that died. The ground just shook. You could feel the vibration. So we ran straight away. We knew it was a bomb. We ran round the corner, and all we saw was just a bus was totally blown to pieces. The the middle of the bus was totally blown out. The bus driver was blown out of the driver's seat. My mate went round to the bus driver, put his coat on him, See if he can do anything for him. The police were there almost immediately. Uh, There's a person sitting in the middle of the bus just burning away. Burnt her crisp. I've never seen anything like it in my life. In in terms of being able to process the trauma of what you went through. Did that give you... Because, obviously, we're going to talk in depth shortly about your role in family liaison. But did that show to you the very early... ends, The skills and the way that you're able to manage the exposure to trauma and stress, did that give you a good understanding as to where your strengths lied within policing? Because you must have been incredibly resilient to get through what was quite a confronting moment in your early part of your
1: career. Do you know what? You're absolutely right, because... I found that um, uh, how do I say this? So I would I look back on that and I I think it's almost straight away I look back on that and say could I've done anything differently? And I do that all the time. Uh, and I used to do that when I I don't know why I do that. It's just something that's that's ingrained in me, probably. So uh, you learn more from your yeah. mistakes, don't you? And I'm a great believer in learning from mistakes. And and could have done that bit better. And even if it's just ticking in my head, processing, that's what, what I do. And I and I remember thinking, right, especially when I heard the the, the transcript, the voice of me, you know, shouting down the phone. I remember thinking that, that didn't happen. And I also remember watching on the TV of a guy um, who said that he was on the bus shouting upstairs. And I'm thinking, um, I, I don't remember hearing him. He was lying. He's lying. And I remember for a couple of days afterwards, I was adamant. And then I thought, you know what? I've just had my I'm, my ears are probably suffering. You know, I've probably, I've just had this trauma. Um, so so I, I might not have heard him. You know, I might have had some kind of experience with, with my ears that would have caused that issue. So I started to start looking at this. And I started to think about the way that you respond. And I now do sort of lectures. Um, When I do, uh, I do these sort of lectures to students in policing. Um, And I base it on that. That's the start point for me. And I say how you respond, how you make decisions when you are traumatized, when you are, uh, you know, uh, under pressure. All right. It's totally different. How you would if you were sitting in an office surrounded by your friends having a chat about you know this that and the other the uh, key operational decision that you were going to make then you know if you were planning an operation there actually yeah. being involved there your body reacts you know uh, and so I started thinking well right I next time this happens to me I'm not going to shout and scream all right I'm going to I'm going to remember that all right I'm going to sit back and I'm going to uh, and I'm not going to why didn't I walk to the front of the bus to look where the driver is? Why did I go into the bus? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. And I don't know if this is a sort of PTSD yeah. from, from, the, uh, from the thing, from the incident. I don't think so because I, I've got this, uh, and I believe I've I got this from my my DNA. I've got this resilience where I can just put it in a box and um, I'm very, very fortunate in that it doesn't yeah. really affect me um, that bad. I don't have that sort of flashbacks or anything like that. I can remember the feeling in my chest when I was when I was thrown forward. But as, uh, that, and aside for something that happened in the tsunami, there was nothing that I think that makes me go, oh, you know, that, that keeps me, me me awake at night. So I, I have got that that resilience. And I think a lot, a lot of cops have. I think we're naturally built in that in, in, in resilience. Uh, and... Uh, um, I think you know that self-reflection as well I think a lot of cops do that and don't tell anyone (laughs) all right so I I think that with me it was right the next time this happens to me I'm going to do it better and it it might have not been on a larger uh, it might not have been a bomb but I was in a couple of riots and I I, and I knew that that was going to go a little bit uh, pear-shaped and I knew that was going to be quite stressful but I, I remembered those lessons know and that that just worked for me as well to when I ended up you know all the way to to you know when I was in Brussels when I was in in Seuss uh, there and even when my last sort of um, weeks working when I was doing with the Westminster Bridge um attack you know they they, they, the lessons that were learned on that day were put into place 15 years later if you know I mean well more than 15 years nearly 20 years later. because because I I'm aware of it and and uh, and is it wrong to say I, I I quite like being in those situations now. All uh, right, that's the only thing that I miss from the police. Apart, I mean, obviously, I miss the people. All right, but when I see a big job going off, and I think, oh God, I'd love to be there. And I, do you know what? I think it's a bit of it, it's a, a bit of arrogance. And I'm, I'm nowhere. I'm not an alpha male in any way whatsoever. Um. But I think uh, when it comes to crisis or when it comes to that love, um I, I can solve this, you know, and, and, and I think that's what it is. And I think, you know, I'm, I, I, maybe it's a bit of arrogance. Maybe it's, uh, you know, m- maybe that. that. But I generally that those sort of challenging situations were the best weeks, the best times in, in my, my career for me. Um, does that does that sort of make sense? That, so maybe it's a lot like a little adrenaline rush, really. T- you know,
0: yeah, I, I think I think one of the most impressive things is is that the body responds in two ways to critical exposure to trauma, and it's fight or flight. And I think naturally in the DNA of police officers, some of us don't know what that reaction will be until we're actually faced with it. But most of us, I think, ninety percent of coppers have that fight sort of dna in them because they want to be able to support people. We're there in an emergency, we're there, the adrenaline kicks in. That kind of shuts down a lot of the kind of defensive mechanisms because we want to be able to help and to to um to be able to change a situation for the better, which is, you know, a, a, but I think what is incredibly impressive in terms of what you've gone through is your ability to compartmentalize the trauma so that it doesn't affect you in terms of being able to go right. Yes, it's bad. Yes, it's not pleasant. It's not normal. But I've got a job to do, and I want to do it well because I want to be able to look after people, and that's incredibly impressive. I, I, I want to go. I want, if we can, go into some of these these incidents that you've you've taken part in. Before we go into them, I want to talk about the family liaison officer role. And I want to understand from your perspective, because obviously you've spent some time in witness protection, you've done some, you know, you, you obtained the rank of detective sergeant, but a large amount of your career has been in family liaison. What drew you into that line of work? What was, the, what was the career path that you decided that you wanted to be in that role?
1: So I didn't decide that I wanted to be a family liaison officer. It was decided for me. I went to Charing Cross, uh, in, uh, in the Intel department, in the Intel unit with Ray Harling. And Ray Harling um, uh, was a ex-surveillance um, officer. Uh, and he, he got us out and about. So I was part of this small team of three or four of us um, that would just, we would set up jobs for sort of the crime squad that Dave McCurdy, uh, who, who, was, uh, who had been my street duties, was, was part of now. And so we would, we would almost be there, sort of intelligent, sort of planning. Uh, and we would, you know, we would use, we had a, an excellent analyst um he he would uh, he would do an amazing um sort of analytical functions he was one of the first analysts in fact he ended up training people in it um, and then we had this uh, a, a researcher kay called and she was just fabulous on uh, in uh in her research capabilities and so we would do the sort of street side the front side you know the front uh, the, the front intelligence gathering side of things and then we would get the package together we would do street follows and we would follow people off and uh, you know to watch what what um Ray had taught us and it was just absolutely brilliant time for me I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it uh and then one day um well after this it was the Stephen Lawrence tragedy actually really wasn't it the, the Stephen Lawrence tragedy changed a lot for 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 policing uh and it had two impacts on on my life for a start for for, for once uh for the first thing is that um the murder squads needed intel gathering uh capabilities because they hadn't had it had it Previously, or they hadn't had it. Sort of a professional intel gathering, um, so they reached out and got a load of of uh, people from their sort of new intel units, the ones with the computers that I just about worked how to use. Yeah, <laughs> and um, they started reaching out to people like me and saying, "Do you fancy being in, in the murder squad?" And I went, "I'm a PC. I, I don't, you don't go on a PC. You don't go in a, in a murder squad as a PC." And they were just come to the interview, so I went to the interview, and uh, they asked me, "Could I open the Intel cell?" And yeah, can you do this? And yeah, it says, "All right, do you want to start then?" Okay, all right. So I, I ended up being in a merge squad, and I worked on the Intel uh, side of things, which was brilliant. It was I was given so much freedom and leeway in in that Intel cell. But one Friday afternoon, I was in the office. And the DI walked in and said, ah, Miles, what are you doing next week? Because we hadn't had a job. And I said, I've got nothing planned. He said, all right, good, because you're going to be a family liaison. You're going to have family liaison training starting uh, Sunday. I went, what? And he said, Mark can't go. One of the DCs can't go now. Got a problem. So you're going. Because I was in the office at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon, uh, I got told I was going to be. So I begrudgingly, again, begrudgingly went down there. And it just, after about two or three hours sitting there, I thought, Hey, do you know what? There's more to this. This is quite this is quite interesting. Now, I'm I'm really fortunate is that I'm I'm quite naturally a- empathetic. Uh, and <laughs> you um, you spoke about uh, earlier on how you, you wanted to you know you wanted to support people. You wanted to do that's why I joined the job. Uh, and I know other people say oh, I want to jump because I wanted to help people. I generally do, <laughs> and I still do that. that. That's that's just part of my DNA. Again, and that's yeah. Another yeah. thing that I, I've accepted that now in the old days, oh no, no, you know, you know, I like the uniform, or I like, <laughs> you know, you know, I like that. But you know, it, it's because I wanted to help people, and I think uh, there's no one better than to, to help these people than me. I can do it, you know, I can help, help these people. So, so this FLO range became, oh yeah, this is actually um, really, really interesting, and and I delivered death messages before, but I remember. Um, being taken out literally about a week after I'd passed out done done the FLO training. And I ended up on what they call the hat car, the uh, a homicide assessment uh, uh, hat car of an evening with a lady called Jane Guyford, who is now the assistant chief constable of um, Cambridgeshire. Wonderful, wonderful cop and a really decent person. Uh, and she, in fact, she runs the DVI sort of cadre um, now. She's got the DVI lead. Um... But she said, right, we're going to go and do this death message. Uh, And I remember going round to deliver this death message and tell this lady that her daughter had killed herself But before by jumping off a bridge in front of a train. But she'd taken her daughter with her, her six-year-old daughter with her. So effectively, I was telling this lady that she'd lost not only a daughter, but her granddaughter. And it's likely that her granddaughter killed her daughter as well. You know, and I remember oh, sitting. God. I can still remember it, it was out Twickenham, and I can wow. still remember seeing this lady was sitting on a sofa, and I think they were um, from Greek Greek heritage, and had this marvelous sort of post uh, picture, huge it was of, of this um, her daughter sitting on uh, with her granddaughter sitting on, on on the lap, the three of them there, and I can still remember that lady sort of sitting there. Doing that, doing that, and I and I thought to myself from that point. Well, you know, it's not going to get any 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 worse than that, Um, because you know that. How do you you know? Tell someone that your child said is is is, is, no matter what age that child was, is terrible. But to also tell them that they had to that they were responsible for the death of their grandchild as well. You know, so from there onwards, I got that sort of perspective, and Jane did me massive favour by, uh, and and when we got out, we were in the car, and I remember I was I was driving away, and she she said, "Well, uh, you you're great, Mars. Don't you know you're really good. How do you feel? How do you feel?" And she 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 was really really good with me in those hour after I delivered that that message, and now cops do this all the time. They they do it all the time, and it either makes or breaks them. But, but this 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 by spending that little bit of time with me it, I, I was able to process it and then i was able to, to do it every other time and i've delivered dozens and dozens and dozens of death messages uh and i never and i i, I if i ever tell a couple you know i do training for police um, um recruits uh, occasionally and i say to them, never get used to it never let it to be one of those oh yeah yeah i'll do that i can do that because you are bringing the most devastating news possible, and that that person will remember you for the rest of your. Life. I only remember one or two of the people that I delivered death messages to, all right. But that person will remember you for the rest of their lives, and um, and um, that uh, we uh, that was proved to me in in the sous in the, um, sorry in the Brussels attack when I spoke to to one of the, the victims there and the delivery of the death message there and he, two years later, um. He word for word recounted what was said uh, in that room when the when the death message was was delivered. So they know that. that, 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 So it's important that you don't take that as just another chore, just another um, chore's not the right word. A task. It's it's probably the most important thing you're going to do that day. You know, I think this is you know there, there are other people who are you know other police officers will tell you different stories about it that. But from my perspective, it's going to be the most important thing you do because you are going to have the most long-term effect on that individual sitting in front of you. And if you join the police to help people, all right, you've got to help them and you've got to do it right. And, and you you you've got to make it so that it's just a, it's just a tiny bit better for that 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 individual concerned and that that, that family. Because if you don't um, you will be setting them on a path to to rack and ruin. Um, one thing about grief that you learn in in FLOing is that um, there is there are all kinds of psychological med- models, um, but every one of the psychological models has got the word anger written in it. And anger is the one that you've got to get through the quickest. And usually, if you handle it wrong or something goes wrong in the process, all right, that's the one that will will the people will stay in the longest and it keeps festering and festering and festering and festering and it can cause so much damage for decades after the to, after the after the event. So that's why it's important that from from the police point of from your delivery to your death message right through to the way the FLO handles the that family through 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 the courts and all that. Um, that's why it's so so important and that's to me epitomizes why you join the police you're there to help people and and You know, I don't think there's any role that does it as well as the FLOs.
0: You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Detective Sergeant Miles Manning, a former family liaison coordinator who, in episode two, talks to me about his close working relationship with the disaster victim identification teams who, with his family liaison officers, brought closure to the families involved in some of the most troubling events to affect our nation's history. With incidents of natural disaster overseas and terrorism on the streets of our nation's capital. All this and much more, next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.